Hello, James Kenny here, and this is my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 13, entitled The Treaty of Limerick, 1691, Patrick Sarsfield and General Ginkle. This review includes an original song called Balanites Ablaze. Please share this with others on social network and follow and like. Thank you. William of Orange and his forces were able to capture several towns before marching to Limerick. He hurried along, not waiting for his large siege train of guns and ammunition. With his army, he marched from Carhoconlish on the outskirts of the city. He attacked the Irish outposts, overpowering them and marching to Cromwell's fort on Singland Hill, reminiscent of a previous war against the Irish by Henry Ireton's English troops. He positioned some heavy cannon here and opened fire on the city, where the undefended sections were promptly seized by Williamites on the 10th of August, 1690. The defending Irish force were rewarded when a deserter from William's forces came with the news that a large siege train was on its way to the enemy, and if not apprehended, the city would be much endangered. Patrick Sarsfield volunteered to attempt to destroy it, and taking with him 600 picked horsemen, he left the city on Sunday night, the 10th of August, 1690, and crossed Thoman Bridge into Clare. Proceeding north, he crossed the Shannon at Killaloo in a place called Bally Valley. He contacted a guide named Galloping Hogan, who knew every turn and pass in the county. Before daybreak, they arrived at Keeper Hill, where they spent all of that day concealed in the recesses of its southern slopes. From the scouts he sent out, he learned that the convoy, which numbered 100, would encamp for the night at Balaniti, seven miles from Limerick City. That day a Protestant landlord named Manus O'Brien arrived at the Williamite camp near Limerick with information that he observed Sarsfield's troops leaving Limerick and riding out towards Killaloo. The officer in charge paid off the spy, but did not take him seriously. When William was informed, he immediately thought of his precious siege train and its safety. He ordered Sir John Lanier, with 50 horsemen, to proceed to Balaniti at 9 o'clock that night. However, it was 2 o'clock on Tuesday morning, instead of 9 on Monday evening, that the relief force rode off in the direction of the oncoming siege train. Meanwhile, Sarsfield and his cavalry made their way through County Tipperary, which was all in enemy hands, and but for their guide Galloping Hogan, they would be in serious trouble. He led them safely to within a couple of miles of the siege train at three o'clock in the morning. They befriended a lady along the way and she informed them that the password to the camp was Sarsfield. According to Lenehan's history of Limerick, short, desperate and bloody was the scene as Sarsfield passed the sentry and bore down on the camp with the shout of Sarsfield's the word and Sarsfield's the man. Soon there was a flash of bright lights in the night sky and a peal of loud thunder. 
that shook the whole countryside as the whole of William's precious armaments were blown up. Sir John Lanier and his relief force now knew that they had delayed too long and he arrived just in time to see Sarsfield's rearguard. Sarsfield returned by the way of the Bridge of Banagher, having been tipped off that the enemy forces were laying in wait on the previous route. He arrived safely back in Limerick to a hero's welcome, and was hailed as the saviour of the city. A week later, William had secured another siege train, which was escorted safely to the city walls, where he rained down red-hot shot upon every part in retaliation for his previous loss. Fire broke out in several places, in shops, marketplaces and stores, but undaunted, with the firm resolve, the citizens of Limerick, men and women, joined Sarsfield with the courage and fury of tigers. Down through the streets they came, supporting the troops, when they had to reload their muskets. In the interval, the women, with aprons full of stones and bricks, pelted the enemy until the next reload of muskets. From Ballsbridge and Broad Street, for three hours, this bloody fight went on without ceasing. The Williamite chaplain, George Storey, said, The women of Limerick rushed boldly into the breach, regardless of death, which many of them bravely met, but they swept all before them. In one brave rush, the women of Limerick swept the assailants before them, and in the rush they penetrated a section of the Williamite Field Hospital tent. In the crush, a lamp was accidentally overturned, and fire swept through the interior, endangering the injured and helpless soldiers. The Irish immediately turned their attention towards the casualties entrapped in the flames and carried them to safety, while others extinguished the flames after which they fought their way back to the city walls. William resolved to renew the assault the following day, but his soldiers refused to advance on these women and men, who bravely assisted their comrades and saved them from burning to death the previous day. William was not pleased by this insubordination by his troops. He was enraged and promptly left for England, and his army pulled back and retired from Limerick while the people of the city recovered and rejoiced. On the following May the 8th, 1691, a French fleet sailed up the river Shannon with provisions, clothing, arms and ammunition for the Irish troops. But a bitter disappointment befell Sarsfield, when he learned that on board was Lieutenant General San Ru, or St. Ruth, sent by James II to take command of the Irish army and relegated Sarsfield to a subordinate position. James II thought that by creating Sarsfield, Earl of Lucan, that he would be satisfied to allow his French general to control matters. But Sarsfield had worked hard before St. Ruth arrived to get an army together for James II, and he was not happy. Patrick Sarsfield, first Earl of Lucan, was an Irish soldier and leading figure in the Jacobite army during the 1689-1691 Williamite War in Ireland. From a wealthy Catholic family, Sarsfield joined a regiment recruited by James Scott, Duke of Manmouth, for the 1672-1674 Third Anglo-Dutch War, a subsidiary of the Franco-Dutch War. After England made peace, 
his regiment served in the French Rhineland campaign. Sarsfield fought in the battles of Entzheim, Turkheim and Altenheim. He remained in France until the war ended in 1678, then returned to London to join a new regiment being recruited by the Earl of Limerick. He was caught up in the Popish plot, and like other Catholics, barred from serving in the military. Having lost his career, he was often short of money, and became involved in an expensive legal campaign to regain Lucan Manor from the heirs of his brother William, who died in 1675. This ultimately proved unsuccessful amid allegations of forged documents, and in 1681 he returned to London. Restored to favour, James II became king in 1685, and Sarsfield helped suppress the Manmouth Rebellion. He was wounded in several places at the decisive Battle of Sedgemoor. After Richard Talbot, 1st Earl of Tyrconnell, was appointed Lord Deputy of Ireland in 1687, he began creating a Catholic-dominated Irish army and political establishment. Aware of preparations for invasion by his nephew and son-in-law, William of Orange, James sent Sarsfield to Dublin in September to persuade Tyrconnell to provide him with Irish troops. This proved unsuccessful, and in November, James was deposed by the Glorious Revolution. Sarsfield took part in the Wincanton skirmish, one of the few military actions during the invasion by William III. He remained in England until January, when he could join James II in France. Sarsfield remained loyal to James II. After following him into exile in France, he returned to Ireland in March 1689 as a senior commander in the Jacobite army. In 1689, Sarsfield married the 15-year-old Honora Burke, 1674-1698, daughter of William Burke, 7th Earl of Clanricard. They had one son, James Sarsfield, 2nd Earl of Lucan. After Sarsfield's death, she married James Fitzjames, 1st Duke of Berwick, eldest but illegitimate son of James II of England. By late 1690, Sarsfield largely controlled Jacobite military strategy and was given the title Earl of Lucan. The Jacobites' position became hopeless after Ockram, and Sarsfield helped negotiate the 1691 Treaty of Limerick, ending the war. It included an agreement under which thousands of Irish soldiers went into exile in France, later known as the Flight of the Wild Geese. Many served in the Nine Years' War, including Sarsfield, who was mortally wounded at the Battle of Landen in 1693, and he died at He three days later. Despite several searches, no grave or burial record has been found, though a plaque at the remains of St. Martin's Church, He in Belgium, has been set up in commemoration. Patrick Sarsfield appears on the coat of arms for County Limerick. In Limerick City, there is a Sarsfield Bridge and Sarsfield Street, while the local Irish army base is Sarsfield Barracks. An 1881 bronze statue by sculptor John Lawler stands in the grounds of St. John's Cathedral. Part of the route used for the attack on the Williamite siege train is marked out today as Sarsfield's Ride and is a popular walking and cycling route through counties Tipperary, Clare and Limerick.
Michael Galloping Hogan was an Irish rapperie. Following the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland, he was born in the parish of Doon at the foot of the Sleevefelham Hills in East Limerick and was a relatively wealthy landowner before becoming a rapperie. Under his expert guidance in 1690, Patrick Sarsfield and 600 Jacobite troops blew up the Williamite siege train at Ballinity County Limerick. One eyewitness account says that Galloping Hogan was given the honour of lighting the fuse. The Treaty of Limerick was signed in October 1691, but Galloping Hogan refused to accept it and carried on the struggle for a further six months, finally leaving Ireland with the last contingent of wild geese to sail from Cork in late spring 1692, where he became a general in the French army. In 1706, he was forced to leave France because of killing a fellow officer in a duel in Flanders. He fled France for Portugal, where he continued his military career. In May 1712, he contributed to the victory of the Portuguese army against the Spanish at the Battle of Campo Mayor. He remained in Portugal until his death and reared a distinguished family, whose descendants still live in Portugal to this day. The story of Galloping Hogan is just one of the 14,000 soldiers who left Ireland in 1691 and spread their wings as far afield as Cuba and South America. This exodus is commonly known as the Flight of the Wild Geese. Sir John Lanier was a British Army officer. He was wounded and lost an eye while serving under the Duke of Manmouth in France. He served as Lieutenant Governor of Jersey from 1679 to 1684. During the Williamite War, while he was deployed in Ireland, he took part in the Battle of the Boyne in July 1690, the Siege of Limerick in August 1690, and the Battle of Ockram in July 1691. Afterwards, in the Netherlands, he was gravely wounded at the Battle of Steenkirk in August 1692, during the Nine Years' War, and died shortly after. The Irish economy responded positively to the more settled political conditions ushered in by the extension of English rule. Merchants, both Gaelic-Irish and English, could now channel their resources toward a single commercial goal. After 1641, however, it was clear that the conquered Gaelic-Irish society and, to a lesser extent, the Catholic Old English community, had become marginalised in an increasingly commercialised Irish economy that revolved around the possession of land dominated by British Protestants. As Aidan Clark has noted, the economic gains of the 17th century accrued to individuals, while the social cost was borne by the conquered community. This calls into question the extent to which economic and social change penetrated Irish society. In the 1680s, the Irish economy continued to be almost exclusively pastoral in nature, with 80% of outgoing trade emanating from livestock. Where once an Irish farmer sold his cattle to be fattened on the English pasture, now he simply slaughtered them to sell as barreled beef at home. Similarly, dairy products and wool were wholly dependent on livestock. In 1683, a good harvest year, grain and other crops contributed less than 4% to Ireland's total export trade. Sharp differences between English and Gaelic-Irish society 
also continued to be apparent into the 1680s. It was more likely for people of British descent to occupy the more fertile districts of Ireland, to participate in local government and to own land. Thus, in some respects, the Irish economy and society in 1690 bore a striking resemblance to conditions in the early 16th century. In Limerick Port, ships had arrived, but without means of transport, and there were but six small vessels on the Shannon. Carts had to be taken forcibly from the people to carry the provisions and stores on to Athlone. On June the 19th, 1691, Williamites under General Goddard de Ginkle arrived before Athlone for a second time and demanded that the town be surrendered. The governor on this occasion was Sir Nicholas Fitzgerald and General St. Ruth had promised to reach him with a large force of Irish troops from Limerick. It was known that St. Ruth's word could not be relied upon, and he was harsh, imperious, arrogant and vain. He would neither brook contradiction from his subordinates or accept their advice. He was a law unto himself, and from the beginning he disliked Sarsfield. In Athlone, the defences of the town, which had been partially destroyed in a previous battle, were repaired by Sir Nicholas Fitzgerald. He had a garrison of 400 men and had sent out small companies of dragoons who occupied the passes leading to the town. For hours these dragoons managed to retard Ginkle's advance, but soon an army of 4,000 soldiers was pitted against Fitzgerald's garrison of 400 men. The Irish retreated, fighting a losing battle and still no sign of St. Ruth and his promised army. This small Irish garrison had the courage of heroes, and while some were tearing down the arches of the bridge, the remainder undertook the extreme task of facing down the foe. They knew that death was almost certain, but the town of Athlone must be saved. Man after man fell. The bridge became a slaughterhouse, but those brave men did not yield until they had ripped open two arches. In all, half the garrison had perished but they had inflicted heavy losses on the enemy and had effectively barred their progress on the route. At last, on the 21st of June, 1691, St. Ruth arrived with his army of 22,000 men. He proceeded to put the town in a state of defence. He removed the brave Fitzgerald and put Thomas Maxwell in his place. Two miles to the rear of Athlone, he placed the main body of his army with himself in charge. Very soon, near the castle, a terrible battle was taking place, but the brave Irish held their ground. In face of such resistance, Ginkle's project of crossing the Shannon by a pontoon bridge was abandoned and the English were compelled to fall back. Attention was then focused on the broken arches of the bridge, and on the night of the 27th of June, the English laid planks across it, and then the crossing could be accomplished quite easily. Out stepped the brave sergeant costume and asked for ten volunteers to risk life and limb with him to save the town. The eleven brave men rushed to remove the planks from the bridge and had almost accomplished their dangerous mission 
when the Williamites, disbelieving their eyes, woke up to the fact that some of the recently laid beams had been removed. They trained their guns in the direction of the Irishmen, and swept the bridge with grapeshot and bullets, and before the sound of the firing had died away, the eleven brave and courageous men had perished. Who will join me to complete the job, said a voice from among the Irish, and eleven more stepped forward and succeeded in removing the remaining beams. The enemy again opened fire, and this time two walked away to the cheers of their own, and the enemy. Atlone was once more saved, and today the army barracks is named in honour of the brave sergeant costume. General St. Ruth decided to take credit for his half-won victory. He invited the resident gentry and their wives, and the army officers with their wives and daughters, to a grand celebration. However, he omitted to invite two officers, and swimming the river, they told Ginkle that now was the time as the Irish camp was celebrating, thinking the siege was over. St. Ruth scoffed at the notion that the English would arrive and renew the attack, when told that they were making ready to invade the town. Three times messengers were sent to him, but he continued drinking wine and refused to be moved. Patrick Sarsfield was present at his last refusal and cautioned him, Do not treat this message lightly. Whereupon he turned on Sarsfield and abused him. Suddenly the English were across the river and into the defences, and Atlone was lost. That night St. Ruth bitterly lamented his folly, broke camp, and the following day he set out for Ballinasloe. Atlone was a significant victory, and likely to provoke the collapse of the Jacobite army. The Lord Justice in Dublin issued a proclamation offering generous terms for Jacobites who surrendered, including a free pardon, restoration of forfeited estates, and the offer of similar or higher rank and pay, if they wished to join William's army. Some of his officers, including Sarsfield, advised St. Ruth to take his time and prolong the war, and to avoid a pitched battle, but he rejected all such advice. St. Ruth arrived at Ockram village and placed his troops. When Ginkle and his English army reached Ockram, he gave battle. Great slaughter took place, and no quarter was asked or given. St. Ruth was decapitated by a cannonball, and the troops scattered. The story goes that Major Trench cut the heel of one of his leather boots to use as a wedge under the wheel of the gun carriage before the fatal shot was fired, killing St. Ruth. Reverend Story tells the tale of the Battle of Ockram like this. It is at least certain that he inspired his men with confidence. In numbers he was about equal to his enemy. In guns he was much inferior, having only ten as against Ginkle's twenty-four. In position he had greatly the advantage. Long before twelve o'clock on that eventful day, Sunday the 12th of July 1691, his troops had taken up their allotted positions. His right wing was under de Tesse, who was second in command and who had four or five guns. The left was under Sheldon, supported by Henry Luttrell, Purcell and Parker. Two guns were placed at the castle of Ockram, which was held by Colonel Burke with a regiment of foot. The infantry at the centre were under Dorrington and Hamilton, the cavalry under Galmoy. A battery of three guns were placed on the slope of the hill at the centre and swept the bog in front of the narrow pass leading to Ockram Castle on the left. Behind the hill was Sarsfield, 
in charge of the cavalry reserves, with strict orders to remain there. Instead of being second in command, he was thus relegated to a subordinate position, and on that awful day, the greatest soldier of the Irish race was thus condemned to inglorious inactivity. St. Ruth was jealous of him, and would give him no share in the victory he expected to gain. It cast a shadow over the fame of St. Ruth, and in the disaster which befell him, no tears were shed for himself. The sun was going down in the west, and hill and valley and castle were painted with the final beams in the land of the golden sunset. Three days after the battle, Reverend Story went over the ground, and in some small enclosure he saw 150 Irish dead, in others 120, and as he looked around from the summit of the hill, he saw the scattered and naked bodies of the slain. He thought it looked like a great flock of sheep. The English were enraged at their loss, which fell little short of 2,000 men. Charles Chalmont de Saint-Roux, or Saint-Ruth, 1650-1691, was a French cavalry officer serving in the armies of Louis XIV. Despite a long career, Saint-Ruth is remembered largely for his brief service in Ireland during the Williamite War, in which France provided military support to the Jacobite forces of James II. While in command of James's Irish army, he was killed at the Battle of Ockram, a defeat that led to the collapse of the Jacobite cause. According to the Jacobite author Nicholas Plunkett, St. Ruth's body was carried off and brought to the town of Loch Ray, where it was later interred privately at night at the Carmelite Abbey Cemetery. Other accounts suggest that he was buried at Kilcomadden, or that his remains were thrown into a bog or left in a field. At the spot where St. Ruth supposedly fell, a white thorn grew, afterwards named St. Ruth's Bush. A light was said to have been seen dancing around it at night, while visitors took away twigs from it as souvenirs. The site is still marked by a plaque near the Bera Brefni Way. St. Ruth's flag was an irregular black stone in an old graveyard of Kilcomadden, reputed to have marked the place of his burial. Through Loch Ray, Ginkle marched to Galway, where he arrived on the 19th of July 1691 and summoned the town. Lord Dillon was governor, de Usson was in military command, and Ginkle was answered that the place would be defended to the last. But on the 21st of July, articles of surrender were signed, the citizens being confirmed in their estates and allowed the private exercise of their religion, while the garrison were allowed to march to Limerick taking with them six of their heavy guns. About the same time O'Carroll was defeated near Nina, and in September O'Regan surrendered in Sligo. For a second time during the war, the strength of the Irish had gathered at Limerick. In desperation, some of the Irish soldiers, after Ockram, became outlaws. Some deserted to the enemy, but some went back to their fields and laid their sword finally aside. The remainder followed Sarsfield to Limerick. De Tessa became governor of the city, Sarsfield commanded cavalry, with Sheldon his second-in-command. Some of the officers wished to surrender, but Sarsfield and the bishops were for fighting to the last. Ginkle brought up his heavy guns and turned them on the city, and by the 9th of September there was a large breach in the city walls. A week later he crossed the Shannon at St. Thomas's Island, and later still he crossed Thoman Bridge, 
without serious opposition, and had the city effectually surrounded. Confronted by disaster and treachery, Sartreville lost heart when a constant stream of deserters joined the enemy. Negotiations were opened on the 24th of September 1691 and were long and tedious, and eventually, on the 3rd of October, articles of agreement were signed. A few days later, a French fleet sailed up the Shannon with an aiding army and supplies. Ginkel imagined the Irish would now disclaim the articles of agreement and renew the war, but it was not the Irish who were to break the Treaty of Limerick. Sarsfield, when told that a powerful fleet had landed, seemed stunned by the news. He was silent for a moment, then in mournful tones replied, Too late. The treaty is signed. Our honour is pledged. The honour of Ireland. Relations were not very cordial between Sarsfield and Ginkel. Sarsfield wanted the Irish troops to go to France, but Ginkel did not and offered them employment in William's army or the option of enjoying peacefully their property at home. The soldiers were free to make their own choice, and when the day came to do so, 2,000 returned home, 10,000 followed Sarsfield, and 1,000 took up service in the English army. Patrick Sarsfield had ousted the Chevalier de Tesse and the Marquis de Usson, the French commanders in Limerick, and began negotiations to surrender. He and Ginkel concluded a treaty that promised to respect the civilian population of Limerick, tolerate the Catholic religion in Ireland, guarantee against the confiscation of Catholic-owned land, and allow Sarsfield and the fully armed Jacobite army to withdraw to France. Limerick capitulated under these favourable terms in October 1691. Sarsfield left Ireland with 10,000 soldiers and 4,000 women and children to enter the French service. This journey has become known as the Flight of the Wild Geese. The terms of the Treaty of Limerick were not honoured by the 1697 Protestant-dominated Irish Parliament, and Catholics were subjected to the continuous oppression of the penal laws, which discriminated against them right up to the early 19th century. In the following March, a royal proclamation declared that the war was ended. Reverend Storey was able to say in November 1691 that a man might travel alone through the whole country with as much safety as through any part of England. William of Orange, the Dutchman, had triumphed. Protestant ascendancy was firmly established, and the ancient Irish race dejected. Goddard Van Reed, 1st Earl of Adlone, Baron of Ockram, Lord of Ginkel, born in the Netherlands 1644 to 1703, was a Dutch general in the service of England. In his youth, he entered the Dutch cavalry as an officer. He served as a colonel and brigadier in the Franco-Dutch War. In 1675, Ginkel was promoted to Major General and in 1683 to Lieutenant General. In 1688, he accompanied William of Orange in his expedition to England, the Glorious Revolution, which deposed James II. In 1690, Ginkel accompanied William to Ireland to take on the Franco-Irish Jacobites and commanded a body of Dutch cavalry at the Battle of the Boyne. On King William's return to England, 
General Ginkle was entrusted with the conduct of the war in Ireland. He took command in Ireland in the spring of 1691 and established his headquarters at Mullingar. Early in June, Ginkle captured the fortress of Ballymore, capturing the whole garrison of 1,000 men. The English lost only eight men. After reconstructing the fortifications of Ballymore, the army marched to Athlone, then Ockram and Galway. His victory at Limerick completed the conquest of Ireland. Ginkle received the formal thanks of the House of Commons and was created by the King, First Earl of Athlone and Baron of Ockram. The immense forfeited estates of the Earl of Limerick were given to him, but the grant was a few years later revoked by the English Parliament. He joined William in the Netherlands and fought at both Steenkirk and near Winden, assisted in the siege and capture of Nemours, expected to receive command of the main Allied army in the Netherlands at the outbreak of the War of the Spanish Succession, and was offended when that command went to Sir John Churchill. Ginkle served loyally under Churchill and afterwards stated, The success of his campaign is due solely to this incomparable chief, since I confess that I, serving as his second in command, opposed in all circumstances his opinions and proposals. Ginkle provided valuable assistance to the Elector of Nassau at the siege and capture of Kaiserwerth near Dusseldorf and retired after the first year of the war. He died in Utrecht on the 11th of February 1703, aged 58. Was his faithful guide
last words were Oh, that this was for Ireland Sarsfield's the name Sarsfield's the man They didn't 